if you drop one male prisoner into one of those units, he can quite easily terrorise and traumatise 30, 40 women, 20, 30, 40 women. And then when the level of trouble he creates is considered to be too high, he can be transferred to the next house block, the next unit, and then go on and terrorise that group of women as well. So one male can quite happily do quite a lot of damage in the prison. You don't need large numbers of them. Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Kate Coleman, director of Keep Prisons Single Sex. The organisation was established in 2020 to campaign for the sex-based rights of women in prison and for data on offending to be recorded by sex throughout the criminal justice system. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Kay Coleman, thanks for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you. Your organisation's been catapulted into the limelight, really, in, in recent yes. times. Um, probably the most talked about thing has been Adam Graham, who was convicted of rape and then said he identified as a woman um, and wanted to be put in a woman's prison. Mm. Should you tell us a bit about this situation, what happened? Well, I think it's, it's quite interesting, as you say, that has been the incident that has really catapulted prisons into the limelight and given it such prominence, not just north of the border in Scotland, but south of the border as well. Um, and I think one of the things that people have been particularly surprised to hear about, this isn't, you know, some kind of outlier, the sort of thing that never should have happened even under the Scottish prison service policies, that it was all some kind of mistake. And this sort of thing happens routinely both north and south of the border. But to get back to that particular case that you were talking about, so we know, I mean, you've said Adam Graham, I'm going to use his male name, I'm going to call him a man, I'm going to use male pronouns, as I will throughout this interview about everybody that I talk about. And that's because it's biological sex that matters. It's not somebody's identity, their internal feeling of you know, what they would like to be. So to get back to Adam Graham, so, you know, as you correctly said, so he was he was actually charged with double rape and it was after being charged that he decided he was going to identify as a woman. He adopted the name Isla Bryson. Um, he went to court as Isla Bryson and I'm sure you and some of your viewers will have seen the uh, the photographs of him with you know a synthetic blonde wig falling over his face to hide the facial tattoos very tight I think it was pink leggings very tight pink leggings clearly revealing that he has intact male genitalia um, so he went to court he was convicted of double rape um, and as you say, he, he ended up in a women's prison. So the interesting thing is that he was originally supposed to be sent to a man's prison, to HMP Barlini, and that was what was on the documentation that accompanied him when he left court. But at some point during that journey, the decision was made um, to instead send him to HMP Corton Vale, a women's prison. 
And I think, you know, everybody has been quite rightly outraged. You know, MSPs have been outraged. It's been many questions have been asked in the chamber of Nicola Sturgeon, of the Justice Secretary, Keith Brown. It's been all over the press, um, north and south of the border. It's been on broadcast media as well. And people are asking, you know, it's they realise that sex matters, that it is not right that a double rapist is placed in a women's prison. Do you think we're at some kind of like turning point moment? Because as you say, people are starting to question the narrative. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, you know, I've been talking about prisons for years now and there are other organisations that have lost, have, have been founded before mine um, who've been talking about it for even longer. You know, this, this isn't, as I say, a new issue. Um, it isn't a unique issue. And my hope is that this moment will be seized upon to really find justice for women in prison and to enable them to have the single sex spaces that they not only deserve as women, but they absolutely require. Um, I mean, we, we know that women in prison are some of the most vulnerable in society. You know, there was, there was a recent study which showed that I think it was 80% of female offenders in prison in Scotland had a history of significant head injury, which I find shocking, mm. absolutely shocking. And I think it was, it was over half, possibly two-thirds, but I do believe it was over half, that had been caused by domestic violence. So you've got a traumatised population, you know, high rates of previous history of sexual assault, sexual abuse, rape when children, um, the pattern of offending that women typically have, obviously not all women, but women typically have, is that it's bound up with their relationships with men and it's bound up with the offending that those men have also committed. Um, so you've got a very vulnerable population, high rates of self-harm, high rates of mental health problems. Um, and obviously not always, but a lot of the time there's been a violent man somewhere in their lives which has had a very significant negative impact on them. And now suddenly you're, you're putting a violent male offender or any male offender into the prison with them and saying, hi, this is a woman, this is Isla, you must call her she. I mean, it's, it's horrific. You mentioned that Adam Ground's not an isolated mm. case. Could you talk to us about some of the other cases and give us an idea how widespread this is? I can. I mean, I, I have to be quite careful because I can only talk about the cases that are already in the public domain um, from my own conversations with prisoners, with families and with former and current officers. I know of more cases, but I can't go into too many yeah. details of that. Um, but if we're looking at north of the border, um, we believe that there are five men who claim to be women currently held in women's prisons. Four of those are serving sentences, very lengthy sentences for murder. Um, one, we don't know what the offence category is. Um, in the male estate, we believe that there are around 12 who are applying and attempting to get into the female estate. And those include paedophiles, other sex offenders, um, other violent criminals. If we look at south of the border, um, the evidence that we have, the numbers that we have, show that there are between 
it's about 14 and 16 in the female estate and those include men with intact male genitalia, um, men convicted of murder, men convicted of manslaughter, um, multiple serious child sex offences, rape, it's you know serious violent mm. offenders um, and those numbers may sound small you know we've got five where in Scotland the female prison population is around 350 or so and south of the border in England and Wales the female prison population is about 3,600 ish um, so you say okay well th those are quite small numbers but the impact of even just one male prisoner can be absolutely catastrophic throughout a prison you know if, if you think about the the sort of the geography, the way the establishment is set up. Um, you know, you'll, you'll have a house block and you'll have spurs leading off that. If you drop one male prisoner into one of those units, he can quite easily terrorise and traumatise 30, 40 women, 20, 30, 40 women. And then when the level of trouble he creates is considered to be too high, he can be transferred to the next house block, the next unit, and then go on and terrorise that group of women as well. So one male can quite happily do quite a lot of damage in the prison. You don't need large numbers of them. Um, and especially when we're talking about the sort of offence categories that you know really are very frightening for women. Mm. A lot of people would say that the gender someone identifies as should trump the kind of segregation by by biological sex mm. of prisons. What would you say to that argument? I'd say not at all. Not at all. I mean, there, there is no research or evidence at all which indicates that how somebody identifies is more important than the biological sex that they remain. You know, if you look at, there's a small amount of research that has been done, very small, and the offending pattern of trans women, um, no matter where they are in the transition, if it's hormones, if it's surgery, if it's nothing, the evidence shows that the rates of offending, including for serious sexual and violent offences, stay exactly the same as it does for the general male population. If you look at the most recent data that's come from the Ministry of Justice, um, so concerning prisons in England and Wales, south of the border, um, the rate of sexual offending for the trans woman population is 50%. Um, the rate of sexual offending for the general population in men's prisons is pretty stable at around 17-18%, and the rate of offending for females is around 2%. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always very charitable, and, you know, it's small numbers, and, you know, but I, I always, the evidence clearly shows that it is at least the same as the offending for men in general overall. Um, and obviously, you know, that's not all, that's not to say that all men are rapists. Far from it. You know, it's a minority, but it's enough of a minority that that's one of the reasons why we have single sex spaces. What um, practical steps is your organisation calling for? That allocation must be according to sex registered at birth. Absolutely. You know, um, there's 
there's quite a lot of, of arguments come forward and I, I think these have kind of started to disintegrate a little bit more now that people can see the reality of the sort of male offender who is trying to get into the female estate or who's been allocated into the female estate. Um, you know, it's not this hypothetical, you know, tall, willowy, effeminate, you know, probably gay um, trans woman who's, you know, long been transitioned, full hormones, full surgery, you know, has been charged and convicted of a low-level non-violent offence which she might not have done anyway. You know, it's that is not the type of prisoner that we are talking about. Um, and it's it's been it's been quite difficult to sort of challenge that because what happens in prisons is hidden by definition. Um, but I think what we've had now has been a very useful kind of reality check about well you know this is the reality it's not this hypothetical. Um, so getting back to that that kind of hypothetical, there's an argument about vulnerability that this particular cohort of male prisoner is uniquely vulnerable amongst all male prisoners. I don't buy that. Um, there are many groups of male prisoner who are vulnerable, gay prisoners, um, ill prisoners, old prisoners, disabled prisoners, um, lots of different types of prisoner who have legitimate vulnerabilities. And being in a man's prison is not fun. We know that, you know, a women's prison isn't fun either, but it's a darn sight nicer than being in a male prison. But the, certainly in England and Wales, when we look at the figures, the overwhelming majority of trans women prisoners can be managed in the male estate. You know, you have vulnerable prisoner units. You have um, all sorts of, you know, facilities and expertise there, which... You know, if it needs improving, absolutely, and that is a separate argument, that is a separate question that we need to address. Um, but then I don't see why the needs of any of this group must be met in the female estate when it has such a negative impact on the women there. And I think, I mean, I, I, write, to, I write to prisoners, I write to women in prison... I also write to some men in prison who identify as female, um, both those in the male estate and those in the female estate. And I can tell you, these, these policies aren't working for them either. And I think that's quite interesting. I think that those who champion the trans women are women line to the extent that they should also be in women's prisons don't realise how the policies then apply to that group. So, for example, I mean, let's, let's look at Isla Bryson, Adam Graham, for example. Um, the Scottish Prison Service released a report of a review, a lessons learned review, last week. And in that, they said Isla Bryson never had contact with any woman in prison whilst she um, was held at Cornton Vale. Well, that's fine. But the level of segregation and restriction on activities that then has to be imposed on these male prisoners, possibly not all the time, but some of the time, um, in order to keep women in prison safe, is out of all proportion to the objective risk that they 
they present. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to diminish the significance of Adam Graham's crimes. They were brutal and horrendous. But a double rapist isn't actually that unusual. You know, the in a man's prison, why would you need to segregate? You wouldn't really. You know, um, from my letters with prisoners, you know, I hear about this a lot. I hear about this quite frequently, that there are occasional levels of segregation, isolation, exclusion and restriction on access to activities which prisoners are entitled to access, which is out of all proportion and only is there because of these policies, because these policies are trying to pretend that being male doesn't matter, that it's the idea you have of yourself in your head which matters, but then they come crashing up against the actual reality and the impact where biological sex does matter. So they're trying to balance two things and it's not serving anybody. This kind of gender politics world can be a bit confrontational, um, to say the least. Do you think? <laughs> Um, and also you're working with convicted offenders to some degree um, with uh, key prison single sex. So have you ever felt unsafe or threatened in, in the work that you're doing? Um, I, I've been doxxed a couple of times. Um, so doxxed Doxxed means that your real identity... I mean, now I'm, I'm quite open, you know, Kate Coleman, Google me, you know report me to myself, you know, it's not really going to make any difference. Um, but before I was as open as I am, um, my real-life identity was published online. Um, and I did have to get the police involved on that one. Um, and I wasn't scared as such, but I was apprehensive. Um, I've been, I think, comparatively lucky compared to other women I know um, but be that as it may I don't I don't discuss you know my personal life my private life you know I'm you know good luck finding stuff about me online because you won't or very very little um, because you know you you can't take that risk um, you know unfortunately you know there are women who've had you know rape threats and death threats and you know the police force has been used as you know a weapon against them looking you know, at jk multiple, rowling exactly you know multiple arrests you know or you know called in to be um you know questioned for you know spurious accusations of, of hate crime and hate speech um also i think what i do you know, I mean, when, when we, you know, we've had quite a lot of prisons protests over the last year, both in England and up in Scotland, and we've never had a counter protest. Never. I've got a couple of, you know, belligerent emails afterwards, you know, from sort of disgusted from, I don't know, Dorking or whatever. Um, but there's never been the sort of, you know, counter-protests, you know, with the sort of black-masked, you know, Antifa or trans rights activists or whoever it is. And I think that's because they realise it's actually a really bad look. You know, they might think I'm wrong, which they do. They might think that, you know, it's, it's cruel, it's unjust, I'm a carceral feminist, whatever that is. 
Um, but I think they realised it would actually be a really bad look if they pitched up with, you know, actually, no, put rapists in, in female jails. So I think that works to my benefit as well. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it is something that I'm cautious of and it, it is something that I'm aware of, yeah. Yeah. Well, with the Adam Graham case, mm. um, Nicola Sturgeon actually dealt with quite a backlash from that one. It seems like Scotland is somewhat of a melting pot for these kind of issues. Mm. Um, why do you think that is? I think that's a million-dollar question. Um, I, was, I was up in Edinburgh last week. We had a, a protest outside Holyrood and several MSPs spoke and got some really good media out of that. Um, but, you know, we were in the pub afterwards just sort of talking about, well, you know, why this issue... You know, what, what is it about this which is so out of step with what the general public in Scotland actually want? You know, when it is unpacked and it's unpicked and they go, oh, hang on a minute. Really? That's, that's what... You, really? You know, boy, boys in my girls' toilet at school? Really? You know, being arrested for a hate crime for tying ribbons to a tree? Really? You know, a rapist in a women's prison, really, when they understand exactly what it entails, um, as you say, they don't like it. But as to why it's Scotland, I'm afraid I don't know. Um, I think you probably need to get someone who's much more experienced in Scottish politics on to answer that. Um, but whatever it is, I think she's judged it badly. I think she's judged it very, very badly. I think the SNP, the Scottish Government, have made a catastrophic mistake over this. Um, but still, I'm willing to fix it. Mm. You know, I mean, I, Douglas Ross, um, leader of the Scottish Tories, he asked a question in the chamber last week. And again, you know, he was asking, you know, Will you, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, will you agree that Adam Graham, the double rapist, is a man? I'm paraphrasing that, but that was the question. She couldn't do it. And this is now 13 times she's been unable to say what is abundantly clear to everybody, that this person is a man, this person is male. You know, she, she's now sort of created this this sort of mysterious third category. You have women, you have men, and then you have individuals. And Adam Graham, Isla Bryson, is plonked into that third category of individuals, somehow neither male nor female, um, which is absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Um, but with the Scottish Prison Service, with the Scottish Government, the Justice Secretary, Keith Brown... It's just a complete lack of interest in engaging, in discussing the issues, um, which is it's, it's quite remarkable, really. I think I've, I've never seen anything like it, to be honest. You know, just the, the way, the, the lack of transparency, the lack of accountability, um, the lack of a commitment to wanting to solve a problem, to recognising that there's a problem and wanting to solve it, is quite remarkable. The organisation doesn't only uh, work on prison um, stuff. 
There's also yeah. an issue um, in a report that you released recently about the DBS system. Yes, yes. So, um, as you say, we don't just do, do things on prisons. Um, we look at data collection throughout the criminal justice system. Um, we look at police forces and searching policies. Um, and we also look at safeguarding. So we did a, a recent piece of research looking at the disclosure and barring service system, um, which, for those who don't know, is, is basically if, if somebody applies to work with a vulnerable group, which is defined as you know certain categories of adults, so you know adults with disabilities, you know elderly people, hospitals, patients, that sort of thing, or any child, you have to go through a criminal record check, um, and that will disclose the different levels of check, but that will disclose. Um, any convictions and for some levels of check any warnings or you know non-conviction information which would make you unsuitable to do that job um, so it's really important it's not the final point of safeguarding it's not the end point but it's a very valuable tool in safeguarding so we looked at what happens if you change your identity by changing your gender because there's already been a piece of work looking at what happens when registered sex offenders manage to change their name by deed poll, and that way they can sever the connection between the identity that they present for the purpose of this safeguarding check and their record of criminal activity, their conviction record. So we thought, OK, fine, what happens if you also change your gender? because there's all sorts of additional enhanced privacy rights which are only applied to somebody when they change their gender. And what we found was really quite shocking. Um, like changing your name by deed poll, um, you can completely sever the connection between the identity that you present for safeguarding checks and your offending record. And the additional safeguard, the additional um, privacy rights that attach to that means that it's, it's a more complete way of achieving it because there are certain checks which won't be done when you, you change your name. Um, we also found that there's this... Um, so that, that the problem with, with, with DBS, with all these safeguarding checks, is that it relies on applicant honesty. It relies on the applicant to honestly say, yes, I had previous names. These are what they are. Tick the box. These are what they are. So the organisation who's requested the check goes, right, thank you very much. These are the names. Now I know what they are. It goes off to the DBS service. They run the checks. The certificate comes back with all the results for the convictions and all the names that you've ever used listed. So there's a problem. It relies on applicant honesty. But if you've changed your identity by changing your gender, you're excused from ticking that box. What you then have to do is get in touch with a separate service within the DBS called the Sensitive Applications Route. You give your reference number from the uh, application form that you filled in, DBS application form. You give the name that you've used and you say, hi, you know, I, well, I am now, I don't know, Sophie. Um, but bet up until 2019, I used to be Simon. So this is my name, Simon. These are the dates. And they go, right, thank you very much. They go off and do the check. The certificate comes back. So if you've done the right thing, 
you will have given the name, so the conviction information should be accurate, but your name, Simon, won't be listed on the certificate. So the organisation doesn't know who they've got in front of them. They don't know that Sophie used to be Simon. And that is a key part of safeguarding, is knowing who you have in front of you so you can ask your own questions. You know, let's say, for example, you're running a children's rugby club and somebody pitches up and, you know, wants to volunteer to coach the kids. So let's say you've got Derek in front of you, who used to be Simon, ticks the thing, writes Simon down, the certificate comes back, Derek, Simon, and it's clear. You can go... Do you know what? I'm just I'm going to make a few phone calls. I mean, I'm going to phone the football club down the road. You know, there's a you know my friend runs a rugby club in the you know the next borough. I'll phone him up, see what's what. So you ask about Simon. Oh, did you have a bloke called Simon? What was he like? Oh, never had Simon. What about Derek? Oh God, Derek. Yeah, you know, Derek was loads of trouble. You know, we could never prove anything, but there were loads of complaints from the parents and the kids didn't like him. And you know, we didn't feel we didn't feel right. So we had to let him go. So there's your answer. But if you're Sophie, right, and you haven't given your other name, I don't know that, I, that there's a question to be asked. All I can do is phone around and say, have you ever had anybody called Sophie? No, we haven't. You know, you've managed to hide that piece of vital information. Um, so it's, it's, really, it, it's really quite scary that this loophole exists. Um, and what's even more scary, actually, is that when we try and talk to safeguarding organisations about this, um, we just get met with a brick wall. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I think quite, you know, a lot of us working on these sorts of issues have experienced that... You know, it, it's almost like, you know, gender identity stuff. It, it's like a sacred caste. You're not allowed to challenge it. You're not allowed to challenge anything negative that could ensue from it. Where even if it's, un you know, even if you're not saying, oh, everybody who's transgender is, you know, going to game the system. You know, if you're just saying, look, this process also has these unintended consequences which you need to address, people just really don't want to know. You know, it's and that is quite scary, actually, just the you know, the pushback and the no, there's nothing to see, everything's fine, complete lack of engagement. I know charities who use the DBS system mm. as the way of proving whether someone can work with vulnerable people or not. Mm. Um, they, they fully rely on that. Yeah. So it feels quite worrying that this loophole exists where someone can completely hide who they really are. Exactly, exactly. And as an organisation, so let's get back to Sophie again. Let's say I look at Sophie and I go, yeah, you're not female, you weren't born female. And let's say I've got no problem and it's fine and I'd be quite happy to employ trans woman Sophie, but I know that if Sophie has done her job properly, she will have used the sensitive applications route, but I'm not allowed to phone the sensitive applications route, route and check. Really? I can't say, Sophie, reference number this, I believe that she needs to use the sensitive applications route. I haven't got a problem with it, I just need to know that that has happened 
so that the conviction portion of the certificate I've got back is correct, I'm not allowed to be given that information because of the enhanced privacy rights. And this isn't just, I mean, I still think it's a problem, but this isn't only for those who've got a gender recognition certificate. This is for anybody who changes their gender, including by just self-declaration. Um, you know, these, these enhanced rights apply to everybody, you know, which is, which is really... It's, it's quite chilling, really. I mean, we, we found something similar in terms of, you know, the, the weight that is given to gender identity, no matter how you obtain it, whether you get your GRC or whether it's just self-declaration. Um, when we did a piece of research looking at how police forces collect data on suspect sex in crime and incident reporting, and... Only one who answered our questions recorded sex registered at birth as standard. Everybody else was faffing about with either GRC status or self-declared gender identity. Um, many of them including for rape, um, which is ridiculous. And there's, we also ask separate questions. I'm sorry I'm smiling, but you know sometimes when things are just so mm. bizarrely awful... All you can do is just laugh. Um, we ask separate questions about if a suspect is arrested and says, I'm non-binary, how would you record that in the data? Um, so I believe, I can't remember quite off the top of my head, but I believe about 14 police forces chose to answer that question. Half of them said that they would record the suspect's sex as indeterminate or unknown. Really? This is crime and incident reporting. Yeah. What are you doing? The worst one um, was Norfolk and Suffolk who issued a joint response. And they said, they, I mean, they said they were very concerned about how to address this particular issue because, of course, there are 67 officially recognised genders. What? This is the police force. What are you doing? It's just absolutely ridiculous. You know, these data are important. These data are the source data which underpins our understanding of offending. You cannot plan services. You cannot plan a policing response if you don't have good data. And recording gender identity, whether it's legally recognised when you've obtained a GRC or not, that is not good data. Um, and certainly recording somebody who's non-binary as indeterminate or unknown sex is just pathetic. But this is where we are. Are there any other issues that um, your organisation's working on that you, you feel people should know about? Um, I mean, we're, we're working on, we're, we're quite concerned about digital identities mm. um, because these, I mean, th this is to do with the safeguarding, but digital, just in short, digital identities will would enable people to hide their sex more easily. Um, and there's a risk of it creating additional safeguarding loopholes. So, you know, for example, you know, getting back to poor Sophie, 
at the moment, if Sophie pitches up in my office and produces um, passport, driving licence, Sophie F., you know, I can have a look and go, yeah, no, okay, fine, I know that something's going on here. But where you've got a digital identity and that can be transmitted remotely and it doesn't go to me directly, it will go to a third party to verify it, that face-to-face -face interaction is then removed, which is an additional safeguarding risk. You know, if you're going to pitch up as Sophie, you know, you've got to have quite some, you know, nerve about you to be able to do that. But it's much easier just to sit in the local cost of coffee or whatever and just click on your phone mm. and it's done. Um, we're looking at privacy. We're looking at the enhanced privacy rights that attach to changing gender. Um, and we're also looking at uh, sort of police equality and diversity training you know who's doing that what are the you know protected characteristics that they're prioritizing in their training um you know is it sex or is it gender identity I, you know i think we we have a feeling for where that's going um so those are the sorts of issues that that we're working on at the moment just to kind of touch again on on something you'd already mentioned um, some people would, would say there's this feeling that um, transgender people are kind of this different um, group of people and, and the mm. rules don't quite apply to them in the mm. same way mm. that they apply to everyone else. Mm. And how would you respond to that? Well, I mean, it certainly seems to be the case, doesn't it? You know, every, every time you sort of challenge things, um, you know, either people don't want to know or you get an accusation of transphobia. I mean, you know, everything is transphobic. Um, you know, everybody in this country has human rights by virtue of being human. You know, there are faults with this country, absolutely, but we do live in a democracy. We do live in a Western liberal democracy, um, and everybody has rights. It is risible to say that, you know, transgender people do not have rights. It is or do not have access to healthcare. I think there's a difference, a big difference between rights and demands. And I think the real issue is that their demands are not being met. But those demands are not reasonable. I don't believe they should be met. You know, everybody should have the same basic set of human rights, access to the law, and no more. Okay, Carmen, thanks for joining us on British Thank Thought you. Leaders.